0: We live in a constantly changing world where the speed of information is changing how we think and act and connect with one another. When people in a society lose faith in their institutions, in God, and in each other, the nation collapses. We need help rebuilding trust and tying it all together. Welcome to All That To Say, a podcast exploring the interrelatedness of all things in long form conversation. Author, leadership coach, and CEO of Building Champions, Daniel Harkavy joins the podcast to talk surfing, growing up Jewish, and the responsibilities of influence in the modern world.
1: I am so glad today to welcome to the All That To Say table, David Austin. David, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. David works as the director of strategic partnerships at the UN's uh, World Food Program. That's the United Nations, and the World Food Program is an agency under the umbrella of the UN. And uh, as I understand it, David, it is the
2: largest, uh, what should we say, relief agency in the world? Yeah, you could say the largest uh, humanitarian organization in the world. So and that's there you are. working on hunger. And you
1: are working hunger, and you're in a place where you help network the World Food Program with other uh, people of of good heart and ambition to work together to address the staggering need of, of food and poverty in this world. Am I fair on that?
2: That's a, that's a very good summation, yep.
1: Well, now, help us unpack that a little bit. Sure. Tell me about the UN's World Food Program. What is it exactly? How does it work?
2: Sure. So, you'll know that the United Nations was created after the end of World War II to help prevent war. And as they were growing this organization, there were specialized needs. So there's just like there's a United States Department of Agriculture, well, that didn't start till like 80 years after the country was started. Mm -hmm. Abraham Lincoln started Mm -hmm. USDA. They've also started a, a Department of Agriculture early on in the UN. And within that department called the Food and Agriculture Organization, in the late 50s, President Eisenhower, as a way to move American commodities, wheat, corn, soybeans, to help feed the needs in the world of people who were hungry. Because there was an American surplus. There was an American surplus, but there was also a hunger deficit. A a huge need. Huge need. Mm -hmm. So he came up with this idea to help move some of this food as a way to give out of America's generosity and its surplus. President uh, Kennedy formalized that and helped create within the UN the World Food Programme. He also created an office called, the, called Food for Peace, which was Eisenhower's word, food is peace. When we can bring food to those who are hungry, we help lay the foundation for peace building. And so Food for Peace, this part of the U.S. government, this little department within USAID, over the last 50 years, they've given uh, food to about 3 billion people, much of it through the World Food Program. So the World Food Program started as a program, but now it's a big agency, and we, we deliver food on behalf of the U.S. government, who's a donor to us, or the Germans, or the British, or the Canadians, Japanese, any of the member countries of the United Nations. And I'm hearing you say that when the food is
1: passed through the World Food Program, it actually comes with a brand, or, or the recipient but, yeah, understands, well, yeah. oh, this is coming from Germany or the States or whatever. Quite often. Yes. Yeah, yeah.
2: Mm-hmm. So, like, when, you know, you'll go to Somalia, or I've seen it in, in North Korea. There's a bag, and it says in the local language, a free gift of the American people. Gotcha. But it came through the UN World Food From Program. through the WFP. Yep. yep. So, WFP, we work in about 92 countries. Last year, we fed about 114 million people who didn't have access to food. 30 million of those people, we were their only support of food. So, without us, those 30 million people wouldn't have survived. It's staggering to think it's, of the It's a the huge numbers. number.
1: I mean— uh, that's a third. One hundred and fourteen million would be approximately a third of the United States in total.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: That's exactly that's right. And so, how many places in the world is the World Food Program engaged in the delivery of food?
2: So we're in about ninety-two countries, um, and we operate with. Pro- I mean, we don't just do it by ourselves, right? We work with partners. So we have over a thousand NGO partners, non-governmental organizations. So, yep, nonprofit organizations, charitable organizations. That Many of your listeners might think of like World Vision is our largest operating partner. Mm. So we're in a sense almost like a wholesaler. We'll bring the food into the country. We have 50 ships on the water, 90 airplanes, 5,600 trucks on any given day moving food. We're like the supply chain. And if World Vision is there and has programs that we can support, we work through World Vision, or we work through Mercy Corps, or CRS, the Red Crescent, uh, or the local government. And by that you mean these
1: are people on the ground already, yep. in the in the venue, and they have delivery systems that you can harness yep. to deliver the food. Yep. And that's that's what you're doing, David, right? Is is networking these strategic partnerships.
2: Yeah. So what I do in the US, most people in the United States have not heard of the World Food Program. They they've probably heard of the UN, but they haven't heard of the World Food Program. If they've heard of any agency, it's usually UNICEF. Mm-hmm. So, but the World Food Program, you know, as you've just described, we, we feed so many people. We have a huge touch point. And so my job is to help bring other organizations or individuals or institutions like universities who are doing ag research, help bring them into our, um, into our sphere so that we can partner with them to help achieve our mission. And our mission is to end hunger by 2030. Do so, you think that's plausible? Uh, under today's conditions, no. But if you look at the trajectory over the last 50 years, it's certainly plausible. And it's an it's a goal that, that the world has set. So when I say the world has set that goal, that's the UN as a corporate body has set 17 goals, and one of them is to end hunger. And as you work toward that
1: end, uh, you have to I'm guessing you have to be on the front line or you live in the Pacific Northwest of the United States, but you've well-traveled, you've been abroad, you've seen the need. You just said we're in 92 countries. By that, I can extrapolate. In 92 countries of this world, which is almost half the countries in the world,
2: there is a hunger crisis. Otherwise, you wouldn't be there. Yeah. There's a need, right? So some of those countries are extreme need. Like Yemen is probably the worst place on earth right now in terms of just its overall conditions. Half, the, world, half the, the population of Yemen, we are feeding. Uh, it's about 30 million people. It's in a civil war. When they're not at war, they import 90% of their food. Anyway. Anyway. But those, those ports and those roads are closed. So food is being used as a tool to decimate the other side.
1: You're saying, by design, the warring factions in Yemen are denying food each to the other if they're able... As an instrument of war.
2: Yeah, and it's not just there. It's in many of the countries of the world. So that's the extreme case. But then there are other cases where there's a country that's not at war, but because of reasons of long-term poverty or climate change or uh, a natural disaster, they have a need for our, our support. And so some of those places, we might just come in for an emergency, and then over time, we'll turn things over to a development agency or we might stay a little bit longer and do technical support. Okay, so take me,
1: take me somewhere. Take us somewhere, David, in this world, to help an audience largely listening to this podcast that has not experienced hunger in the way
2: you are addressing. Take us somewhere. Where in this world can you paint a picture for us? Sure. So let's start with something that starts out as an emergency and then moves to a development issue. So a couple of years ago, you might remember that in Myanmar... The Rohingya were came under attack.
1: It's and, a minority group in the country,
2: and they they fled across the border into Bangladesh. There were ten thousand people a week coming across the border with nothing but the clothes on their back and the kids they could carry to so Bangladesh, which itself is not necessarily uh, well developed. Uh, no, right, it's not well developed. It's developing. Mm-hmm. It it's it's it has functioning markets and a functioning and growing economy, but to start taking in. You know, um, over a million people in the matter of a few months. It was a a huge deal. It was overwhelming. They came to a city called Cox's Bazaar, which is not that big. And -hmm. these people needed food. Well, in this case, we didn't have to bring in food, actually, because we could buy food locally. Mm -hmm. And so the Rohingya come in. They start just camping out. Our teams come in. Our engineers come in. Our emergency responders come in. And we partner with the local government, to make sure that the people first can get stabilized and we get them food. Once they, they have you know food out of a tent, in a sense, where they we're handing them food. What we did with the Rohingya is we got them a digital identity. So we took their picture, we put it on a little card, we got their name, their birth, their birth you know where they're from, mm-hmm. who was in their family, and they could then take that card into Cox's Bazaar. And we worked with the merchants and they could buy what they wanted. So they could buy rice, they could buy flour, they could buy oil, they could buy tea, they could buy sugar. There's kind of a list, almost like a, a, a food stamp card that we mm-hmm. use in the U.S., electronic mm-hmm. benefits card. So we work with that group. They then get food that they can buy. Uh, and about half of our beneficiaries right now use a food card because we don't have to bring in food. Mm-hmm. And we do that for a real specific reason, is we don't want to disrupt the local markets. We don't want to all of a sudden flood Cox's Bazaar with free food that then lowers the prices, right? It disrupts or, their economy. Disrupts their economy. Or in Yemen where there isn't enough food, we don't give everybody a, a, a benefit card that then they can go buy because that will raise the prices. There's a shortage of food.
1: Then they're competing in a right. shorted market.
2: Right. So we, we have analysts and economists that look at what's the most appropriate design. We work with the local officials to figure out how do we help lay the groundwork for um, for market recovery and for, the, for that particular group not to be so much of a burden, but maybe there's even a way for them to be a blessing. So like in Lebanon where there's a million refugees from Syria. They use an electronic benefit card. We've been able to trace that those expenditures in Lebanon now account for about 20% of GDP in Lebanon. So that's actually a stabilizing force in an unstable environment. The other thing about those Rohingya, for a moment, is when they get a digital identity card with their picture and a little seal up there that says the World Food Program, they all of a sudden have an identity. They have an official recognition that they exist. That was not something that they had in their previous home country. They didn't have an identity, which was why they fled. And so now you have a million people as a community who are politically recognized as an entity. And in a sense, it's the groundwork as well for civil rights, because they have a, a, a status, and we can protect a status. Does that make sense? Absolutely. I
1: mean, it's, it's you're describing things that most of us in the West, or I would say in the United States here— take for granted and don't even think about. Right. <laughs> Food, identity, status, uh, and and you're just describing a world, which is coincident with us right here at the table today. There's a whole world of people who don't have those things that we take for granted at all. And what you're talking about is delivering to them, not just today's meal, but a window or a doorway for a lifetime. Right. It gives them hope. And and a way forward. Yeah. Even though the road could still be long and hard. That's right. Well, it's most extraordinary. And so uh, I'm still haunted a little bit by your description of Yemen, where there is a war and and food is being used as a kind of leverage. And, and actually, as I think about it, there are many stories in history of a siege on a town or uh, a country even, blockades, which are designed to disrupt economies and even livelihoods and and the life stream of food, I suppose. So it's not a new phenomenon. But as you look at the world today, uh, how prevalent is that? I mean, you've got Yemen. Are there other places where that's going on?
2: Oh, there's there's dozens of places where that's going on. And so right now, about 65% of our budget. So our budget this last year was about $8.5 billion, which is money we have to raise. That's not given us through a, you know, somebody doesn't just allocate money to us. We have to go out and raise money for every single program in each country that we're working on.
1: Okay, so I'm always
2: detouring your great answers
1: because everything you say just makes my mind run. Let's just clarify this. You're a UN agency, but it's not like
2: everyone's paying dues to the UN to support this agency. No, our agency is a voluntarily funded agency. So we have to raise our money every year. Our executive director is responsible to raise $32 million a day. Because that's what it takes to meet the need,
1: even inadequate as that might be, and it has to be funded. Some of that fundraising
2: comes from governments, I presume? Yeah, most of it does come from governments. But, but we're com- in a sense, we're competing for that money. We're having to justify yeah. how we'll do it, So, which is great accountability, right? Mm-hmm. I, I don't want you to just give money to an agency. I want there to be competition. I want there to be justification. I want reporting. I want metrics. So that part's good. I don't... Uh, but it's still a job.
1: Oh, and and it's a big and, job. And it's a piece of the organization that has to exist to make the rest of it possible. And you've got governmental support, but you also, I'm going to guess, have some philanthropic uh, foundations or things like that that may invest, as well as an individual. I mean,
2: is this it, it something I could give to? It is, and I can give you the web address if you would <laughs> well, like to get. Well, before <laughs> we leave here, I want to get that.
1: And I'm sorry to tour you, but this just amazing to yeah. think that when we hear the word UN, I think people sometimes run to a kind of a, a bureaucratic uh, funded organism, and that's yeah. not
2: necessarily the case for all of its agencies. That's exactly right. right. So that you know, New York is funded through dues that the U.S. pays and other right, countries. Right, right, the home base. That's right. We're not. We have to raise that money, and we do have. We have some some strong corporate sponsors, some corporate supporters. We have some individual donors, but our indiv- you know our private money coming from anything but governments is like less than five percent, and we would really like to be raising more of it because not just to raise the money, but to raise the connection. When people can feed somebody else, when you get to have that sort of participatory um, experience in in bringing hope to someone or to a family or to a community, Mm -hmm. uh, and you can direct your giving that way, and then in some cases you might be able to go to those places, it's transformative not just for the people who receive it but for the people who give. And I...
1: I detoured your response to my earlier question about where in the world is conflict, armed conflict, causing grief on the food front?
2: Yeah, so Syria is a huge problem. Somalia, uh, and then a country formerly known as Zaire, the Democratic Republic mm-hmm, of mm-hmm, Congo, yes. that's going to be probably be the next largest crisis. South Sudan, which sadly is known as a Christian country, is, is got some of the highest incidence of hunger, almost half the population— is in need of food support, and we can't even we can't even drive it through. We have to actually fly airplanes, and then dump it out of the back of the plane while the plane is flying to get to some of these places where people are in need of food.
1: How do you how do you define hunger? Uh, because my first reaction to the word hunger. Now you've just described Sudan pushing food out the back of the plane, half the country desperate for food. My first thought is people starving to death, which mm. is a horrific a physical and emotional experience that I could imagine. I can't imagine, but I mean, I project. But then there are other things, there are other costs of hunger. In other words, uh, not everyone dies who's hungry. No. It might just be, uh, affect the development of a child's body or right. physicality.
2: Right. Help us understand that. Sure. So Well, within how do we define hunger? It's a great question. Everybody listening knows what it's like to be hungry. You just don't eat for 12 hours and you'll start to get hungry. But you do that long-term, especially to a child under five. Anywhere in those first five years, you do that on a longer-term basis. If a child doesn't have the calories that it needs for growth, it's going to impact its brain. Half of a child, a, a newborn, the first two years half of the calories they consume go to their brain development. Mm. And so if you cut those calories, their body will not grow as much and their brain won't develop as much. And that then has huge implications for the country's future development. If you've got a stu- uh, you know, a physically stunted or and a, you know, a mentally stunted uh, generation, that's going to have a long-term impact. Wow. So, wow. so, are there are there particular metrics uh, mm-hmm. that you use to define you know this is a crisis sure so within my industry we call it, there's this thing called the the IPC scale and IPC 1 2 3 4 and 5 1 is everything's fine 3 is uh, it's moving to a, it's a crisis we have x amount of people that don't have enough food and then IPC 4 which is it's an emergency People are moving into famine where they're, they're starving at IPC four. And then IPC five is a a definition of famine where it's over 10% of the people are, are, it's, it's, it's famine is when I think, I don't remember the exact number of people are dying of starvation per thousand Mm. and uh, you don't ever want to get there. Even you get with more than one person dying from starvation for every thousand like that. That's a problem. Anybody starving is a problem. So right now, with IPC 3 and, and 4, uh, which is critical and emergency status, that, like 4 is a big, big problem. Right. It's like 80 million people.
1: The world is a volatile place. Uh, there are political conflicts. There are natural disasters. There are all kinds of things that are anticipated and unforeseen. We've been living through a pandemic, where the whole world has been interrupted by the COVID-19 virus. Uh, Everyone understands that at some level, no matter where you live on the planet, uh, you've been affected in some way. And I'm going to guess that that also prompted some food crises because uh, I, I have a heart for the subcontinent India. I have a lot of history and friends and relationships there. I know that the country right now is in its most severe lockdown, but previously had been a lockdown where uh, people who were wage earners and so on were isolated, could not return home. Lots of real challenges. I'm just extrapolating across the whole world. The food economy was disrupted. And at the World Food Program, uh, you were asked, I think, or or had not asked, but I mean, your assignment is to deal with addressing hunger issues. This had to magnify the assignment. And ultimately, the world recognized that the World Food Program intervened in a way uh, that was so extraordinary that it received the Nobel Peace Prize in 2020. Talk to me about that. Why would the pandemic uh, generate
2: this spotlight on the World Food Program, and and what would lead to a Nobel Peace Prize? Sure, and that's a, that's a great question. So first of all, it's really easy to understand why the pandemic created a, a almost a doubling of hungry people in the world. You know, in the U.S., there was a shortage of toilet paper. People got nervous yes. and they went after toilet paper. Mm-hmm. Well, in Guatemala. You know where there aren't as many choices, and and as the country starts closing down and locking down, you want to make sure you have enough food. And so they weren't concerned about toilet, they were concerned about food. So all of a sudden that raised the prices of food by over two or three hundred percent. And when prices go up that high, you start altering the way you're going to farm if you're a farmer, mm-hmm. and what you're going to grow. You're going to make sure you grow enough food for you your family to eat. So you're going to stop growing cash crops. You're going to grow food to make sure you survive. So it, it had an impact on agriculture. It had an impact on food. And then think of all of the people in the United States who are, have come here from another country, and they send their remittances home. So they earn money working at a hotel, and they send half their paycheck back to their family in El Salvador or in, in, in uh, you know. Haiti or whatever. Haiti, whatever, right? A trillion dollars of remittances disappeared last year. Trillion dollars of remittances that are—is money going from the developed world to the developing world? Uh, this, these are people who were locked out of their jobs in this country, in this country, and or that, in Western Europe, or in Japan, a, or in Thailand, Malaysia. A the trillion Gulf, dollars a trillion worth. Trillion dollars worth of money that was moving into helping support those really underdeveloped countries and those families. Trillion dollars was lost. So you loo- you reduce their incomes, raise the prices of food. All of a sudden, we went from 135 million people in the world before COVID who were hungry to now it's about 270 million people in the world who are hungry. So it's it's really moved up the need. In a short time. In a very short time. So that's one issue. That's the hunger issue. Then WFP. So like I told you, we have all these ships and airplanes and trucks moving food around. We're the supply chain of the UN, so to speak you'll remember that when COVID happened and people needed PPE and we were looking you know, we couldn't get masks here in this country, right? Mm-hmm. So how are you going to get a mask in Niger or in, you know, countries across sub-Saharan Africa or Guatemala? How are you going to get that? Especially if the planes aren't flying. So the airplanes stopped flying. Well, we have planes. So long story short, in February and March the UN said to the World Food Program, hey, we need you to interrupt some of the things you're doing, even though your your needs are going up, and we need you to move PPE around the world so that other countries have access to it. So all of a sudden, we became this cargo company (laughs) overnight, Mm -hmm. and we moved about 60,000 tons of PPE and diagnostic material to 171 countries over the next six months. And then in May and June... When passenger flights weren't going, you know, just imagine if you're at World Vision or your Catholic Charities or you're with the Ford Foundation, and you've got staff in some of these countries where there's no longer air service. So our airplanes also, we created overnight a passenger system mm-hmm. web portal so that we could get people out and move people in. And then we also created a medevac service for all of Africa, for all of the international aid community across Africa. So in May and June, we were the largest passenger airline carrier in the world for those two months. Wow. Targeting people who are working the relief side of the COVID crisis. Right. So yeah. for those people to move, to to get in and out, or if they got COVID, where did they go? You know, if you if you can't send your employee into a country where you know they're gonna be able to get extracted, you're not gonna do it. And so we we kind of served as that safety net. So for the reasons of moving all of that, COVID material, that support material to help the the health system, the healthcare system around the world, plus doing the food, the Nobel Committee recognized that as as, um, a significant contribution to stabilizing the world for peace. Well, let's talk about, I mean, thank you. Let me just say, I realize
1: you're not actually flying the plane, but. But I know some of the guys that do. (laughs) You're representing that. Let me just say, thank you. It's a wow. But let's connect the dots between food and peace. Yeah. That's not
2: just so obvious to everyone. Well, it isn't at first unless you just spend a couple of minutes thinking about it. If you don't have food, what are you going to do? You're going to do what you can to get it. And so you're going to go to your neighbor's house, or if they don't have it, you as a community are going to look where what communities do have it. And you're going to try to get it from those communities. So... I'm going to go back to Guatemala for a minute. You know, if there isn't enough food in Guatemala, people in Guatemala, they move around looking for that food Mm -hmm. in their country. Mm -hmm. It's not like Guatemalans want to come to the United States, right? Or the Venezuelans where there's a huge food crisis. They're moving around Venezuela. And then if they can't find it in Venezuela, they go over to Colombia. So 5 million people have left Venezuela in the last few years looking for food. And we've, we've done a study, and we can show that for every 1% increase in hunger, you get a 2% increase in migration out of the country. So in Syria, we've seen the same thing. There, Because of the war, there isn't food. And so the people in Syria have gone to Lebanon, to Jordan, and to Turkey. There's 5 million Syrians living in those three countries. Which is a huge proportion of the Syrian of their, population. Absolutely. Yeah. And then a million of those Syrians went on to, to Europe, Europe. Yeah. Right? So... Hunger destabilizes a community in, in, in sub-Saharan Africa, right along the, the edge of, of the Sahara Desert from Niger, Bur- Burkina Faso, Mali. As those countries have gotten hungrier, we have seen Boko Haram, al-Shabaab, ISIS, and al-Qaeda grow. Now, we have hundreds of offices across the Sahel region. And we know who's competing to recruit people using food as an enlistment tool. Mm-hmm. And and so our beneficiaries, they're so grateful that we're there because the alternative is go to work with an extremist. Send us your sons, and we'll send you food. And and so if you don't have food, you're going to do what you can to get it. Um, I've
1: realized this, this will seem really small, but uh, I... I practice intermittent fasting uh, just as a way of trying to manage myself as I can become an old man. That said, you know, as you, you mentioned, 12 hours without food to get hungry. Well, I'm, I'm a guy who, in an ordinary routine, might work through the day and I might go 20 hours with uh, nothing to eat. And it's okay for me. I mean, I'm, I'm adjusted to that. But I, I'm only reflecting that if I do 20 hours, which is not unusual for me, and I get home, I'm... I'm a different person than if I had eaten through the day. In other mm. words, I become a ravenous monster. I might lose some weight if I didn't just come devour the house after that. And I'm just I'm experiencing at some level the primal drive of hunger. And when you're hungry, a lot of other things fall by the wayside. And I, I'm just suggesting to our audience that while we may not ever wonder where our next meal will come from because we have a supermarket. Uh, or some place, even a food bank, if you're unemployed and not able to go to the market, we have access to food. But if you didn't have access to food, is there anything more driving in human experience than the quest for food? I mean, is that fair? Uh, Because you're describing social upheaval and political upheaval, but it's really driven by the basic need
2: to eat. Yeah, it it is a massive driver. When I'm hungry... I start looking for, what am I going to do? If I'm mm-hmm. driving across the country <laughs> yep. and, uh, you know. Pretty I'm soon hard. all the
1: rest, of the destination is lost as you're watching for a place to eat.
2: Yeah, and so you talked about intermittent fasting for 20 hours you might not eat. What if you only had 1,200 calories a day for a month? You're going to lose a lot of weight. You're going to be tired. You're going to be edgy. And you're going to be thinking about food all the time. Yes. And what if your kids only had 1,200 calories? Your adult kids had 1,200 calories. And what if their kids had less than that? You're going to start thinking about who eats, who doesn't eat. And as everybody's losing weight, you're going to start selling your things and figuring out where do you go, what do you do, how do you do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it becomes a huge driver. And just imagine if that was your experience for, for a generation. You know, uh, I, I've had the privilege to go to North Korea several times. And the North Koreans are genetically, you know, just like the South Koreans. They're Koreans, but they're about six inches shorter as a whole. The population, the population across the board. Across the board, hmm. because they've had chronic malnutrition for so long. While the South Koreans, who have a, a, an open market and can buy and import export food, they 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 don't have a nutritional need. the The, the government of South Korea has made a priority on nutrition. And so when you prioritize that for more than a generation, you start to see the physical impact of that on your population.
1: I want to active listen. You said six inches.
2: Yeah.
1: I mean, that's a huge impact.
2: That's a huge impact.
1: Yeah. 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 Wow. Well, this idea of hunger has been with us a long time. I mean, Jesus famously said, you know, the poor you're always going to have with you and so on. And I, sometimes I think people... Um, uh, we realistically say, you know, the world is filled with problems and there's a lot of mountains. We just, we know they're there. I'm not sure we can climb them all. Uh, this idea of poverty, which is closely connected to this food crisis, uh, it just seems to me that what, what's the most elemental irreducible prime of poverty is I don't have food. Mm-hmm. Uh, is a, It's a constant hunger in the world. Are we making progress? I've read some stats that suggest that uh, we have made progress. For instance, there was a time uh, in my lifetime where one out of every five people would be hungry, and now that may be one out of nine, Mm -hmm. which is a progression. That's that's great progress. It's still a thing. What's your take on that? Are we actually moving in
2: the right direction, or is it hopeless? Well, in the big picture, we're definitely moving in the right, right direction in terms of the last 50 years. So in 1965... That was when half the world's population lived in extreme poverty, which meant they were regularly dealing with hunger. And you go back 200 years, it was like 90% of the world's population lived in extreme hunger or extreme poverty and was regularly dealing with hunger. So 1965, it's half. That's a, that's a, that, was a, that was a benchmark, half mm-hmm. the world's population. 25 years later, by 1990, they'd redu- the world itself collectively had gone from 50% down to 30%. So only 30% were living in extreme poverty. From 1990 to 2015, we went from 30% to just under 10%. Whoa. Yeah, it's huge. Oh, that's huge. That's huge. At the same time, from 1965 till, till 2015, the world's population doubled. So another way to frame this is the numbers of people not living in extreme poverty has skyrocketed. In, which is tremendous news, right? That's We should all be thrilled with that. What's happened in India, South Asia, their hunger rates have just dropped dramatically up until 2015. Same in China. You know, China, in 1982, 88% of the people in China struggled with hunger. Now it's less than 3%. That's so huge. It's huge. So you can, you can make a lot of progress. Um, but since 2015, we've started to go back. We're going backwards. Uh, so it's it's. Ne- I think we've added about 120 million people have moved back into extreme poverty. And you don't end hunger if you don't end poverty. And you don't end poverty unless you find ways to create jobs. So And that, that takes a partnership with not just the government, but it takes the private sector coming in and creating jobs. So well, what, it's a balance. What's happened uh,
1: from 2015 till today, in your view, what are the factors that are kind of... Uh, edging out the progress and yeah. causing us to move backward.
2: Well, the the big factor is conflict. So war, civil war, civil strife. Um, you talk about the scriptures, and we know that conflict and strife come from selfishness, and that comes from, in a sense, political nativism, where we are pushing our own our own clans' rights over your clans' rights. And so you've seen not, and it's, this isn't an indictment on the United States, right? This is everywhere. So you see that very much so in Yemen. And so Yemen is a proxy war between Saudi Arabia and Iran. And then in the S- South Sudan, you've got different tribes using different tools to create all of that conflict. Same in Syria. You know, it's it conf- man-made conflict. Let me be really clear. The reason we are going back into more poverty is man-made. It is not... It's not because of uh, a rise in earthquakes or tornadoes. No. no. It is because, because people and governments and political entities are creating conflict and people suffer for that. But in that conflict, let's say a
1: clan versus clan, tribe versus tribe, or even... Uh, I mean, there's a geopolitics. Yep. So Saudi Arabia and Iran, that... That's one case. I'm imagining uh, clan groups in Sudan, which may be a, a microcosm of a political strife. But is it, is it driven in part because there just isn't enough food for me to survive? I have to deny
2: you food? No. It's not a zero-sum game. Okay? There is enough food in the world. We know that. We can produce enough food. It's, it's completely an issue of, of political will, a movement and shutting down ports or opening ports, shutting societies or opening societies. So it's it's not it is it is not here, it's not like the world cannot produce enough food. I'm here. We've got said, it.
1: The arguments uh, of overpopulation or finite resources, no. those
2: are not really relevant today in feeding the world's population. Nope, not at all. One of the things that you know we all have benefited from is an advance in technology. Well, that doesn't just apply to computers and electronic technology. It applies to agriculture, agricultural technology. We can produce so much more food now. It's remarkable. Like one of my favorite statistics on food production. A few years ago, the second largest exporter of food by value, okay? The U.S. is the largest exporter of food, has been for a long time. This will shock you. The second largest exporter of food by value is teeny tiny Netherlands. How so? they they produce a lot of food <laughs> right and they do that because they've used technology and agricultural innovation israel this tiny little country they produce enormous amounts of food through drip irrigation greenhouses so technology applied to agriculture produces food security and so and if you have a if you have a politically driven policy that says our country will be food secure, which is what the Dutch did, because you know, during the Nazi occupation... They were eating tulip bulbs, Audrey Hepburn said. That's right. <laughs> yeah. And so the Dutch government at the end of World War II said we are never going to let our people go hungry. And they made a very specific food security policy. And now they are one of the largest exporters of food in the world. And they're one, their size is 1 270th. Of the United States, it's a tiny place. It's a in tiny relative terms. place. Yep, but they made a policy about it, and they said we're not going to be food insecure. So, if you have the will, there's a way, and technology is certainly one of those components to make sure that you can succeed at it. David, you are you are
1: so facile with the data, with the need, with the the complexity. It is in some ways, com- it's it's simple and complex all at once. I mean, you have all that. I'm thinking, where did this guy come from? (laughs) What landed you in this very passionate vocation to help remedy worldwide hunger? Tell me a little bit of your story. As I understand, you were born in eastern Oregon, which is a long ways away from the
2: Rohingya in a Bangladeshi refugee camp. Yeah, so I grew up in central Oregon, the youngest of five kids, grew up in a pretty religiously conservative family in college was exposed to this idea in the scriptures that I had just overlooked that our purpose is to love God and his desire for us is to love each other. And then he makes that really clear. What does love look like? And the way Jesus loved people was he ministered to them. He found those who were marginalized or on the outside who were hungry. And then he kind of captured it in Matthew 25. He said, um, uh, when he's at the end, he says, I'm going to separate the sheep and the goats, and here's who the sheep are. The sheep are the ones who fed me, who clothed me, who came and visited me when I was sick or in prison. And he, he said, and people said, well, when do we do that? And he said, well, when you fed the hungry, when you fed the least of these, he did it to me. So that was part of it. And then I met, uh, when I was in D.C., uh, back in the 90s, there was a congressman from Ohio named Tony Hall. He was a Democrat. And he made hunger his signature issue because he had gone to Ethiopia in the 80s and seen all these children die. And as he read the scriptures, he saw throughout that God talks all the time about the poor. You yeah. found him to be a Jesus guy. Oh, yeah, I found Tony Hall, this Democrat, you know, blue-collar guy, union guy, who really was captured by Jesus. And uh, it looked a lot different than me We, did, we come from different backgrounds, different worlds, different but, worlds, but he was reading the scripture the same way. He still reads the scriptures all the time <laughs> yeah, yeah and uh and he was and he taught me a lot about hunger, and it really wasn't on my radar until I spent more time with him, and then I started to meet people who were hungry and uh when when uh when I met people who were hungry and I could solve their hunger pretty easily uh and it and I saw it transformed them it it made me realize uh, my potential now, Tony
1: Hall uh, is a name that most Americans may not uh, see as a marquee name. He was a prominent figure in the in the House for a season and then uh, as a Democrat was tapped on the shoulder by President George W. Bush to uh, take up residency with the World Food Program in Rome, which is where it's based and uh, and he did that following George McGovern, who had had that seat before. And uh, he pulled you along into that, I know. But I'm, I'm just helping the audience understand a little bit how those, what might we, what we might consider to be chance intersections actually have long-term impacts. And you, I know, have a story about in that season of your life, you're a single guy, you're trying to figure out uh, your own world. And you, you took a trip to Nepal, a little bit at
2: uh Yeah, through, Tony's, through Tony's encouragement and um... Some of my friends and I, who so we were also single and working back in Washington. And what was great is Tony and Janet and a few other... That's uh, his wife. That's his wife, yes. Uh, they would have us over to their home. And they we would have dinner. We'd watch a football game. We would read the scriptures. We would ask him questions about politics. We'd ask him questions about his life. So we re, we were able to really connect. And we got, we got to know his family quite well. And he started getting interested in, in us and asking us to connect him to other other leaders who cared. He was looking for people who cared. So I went to Nepal because Tony said, hey, there's. if you really want to get to know some of these issues, you want to get to know Jesus, you want to have a faith experience, go spend time with people who who you wouldn't normally spend time with. So long story short, a good friend and I went to an orphanage, children's home, and, uh, and we met these young kids. And in Nepal at the time, it, it was a Hindu, a, a legally a Hindu country. And if you were born into a bad circumstance generally that's because you're reincarnated into that for something you did in a prior it's life it's part
1: of the philosophy that your experience today is what you deserve yes from some previous existence that's karma yeah
2: right yep so if you're an orphan there's really no big push to help help lift you out of that difficult circumstance you deserve culturally it because you did something before right yeah right or if you have a physical disability right so we met these young men who were 13, 14 years old. And it was for me and my friend, we just saw so much potential in these young men who didn't have parents living in this home, who had a real special love for one another and the kids around them. And um, long story short, we we said, we're going to be your older brothers. And we kept going back to be with those young men. My friend quit his job at the Defense Department, moved in with them for a year, worked at the orphanage. We stayed in touch. We made sure that they didn't, leave the orphanage until they could leave together and they could bless the woman who had cared for them and they had a place to go together. And one of the young men at the time, his name was Amar, he was, before he moved out of the orphanage, he said, I'm just afraid I won't have enough food. I'm really scared. And I said, Amar, and you know, I'm making like $30,000 back in 2001. And um, and I knew that I could cover Amar's food for you know a couple hundred bucks a year. I said, Amr, I just promise you right now for the next two years, you're not going to ever have to worry about food. I got your food covered for the next two years. Now let's talk about what do you want to do? Do you want to go to college? Do you want to start a business? Do you want to get a job? Let's, let's figure out what we can do. But once we had removed the idea that he was going to be hungry, he had the freedom to start exploring other things. And, and that had an impact on the guys around him. So that had an impact on me. When I realized, look, for a couple hundred bucks, I can take away this guy's fear, and I can also get him nutritionally taken care of. And those guys you know, have done the same for, for dozens of other kids. Because you're still in touch with them, yeah. and you watch
1: their lives unfold, consequent, actually, to that gesture of generosity that said, you will not starve.
2: Yeah, well, I don't think it's so much generous as it was just like, well, look, this is this is this is easy, Amr. You're my you're my little brother. You're not going to be hungry. You know, you don't think of it as generous when yeah, you love somebody. Yep. Yeah, it's yeah. like, hey, what I've got, what's mine is yours, what yours is mine. Like you gave me this nice water, thank you. This is, you don't think that's generous? This is like common hospitality, you know. No, no, that cost us. No,
1: <laughs> I'm just so I know that in that experience, um, you have told me once that. Uh, you ended up washing the feet of some of these young orphan boys. And help describe that for our audience about why that was so powerful in the context of the moment and the place.
2: Yeah, so I, I will. Uh, I haven't talked about that publicly. Oh, sorry. No, that's okay. Um, so we were with these, these boys at the end of the two weeks that we were with them over Christmas— we wanted to affirm to them that we really were committed. We weren't just going to be there for two weeks and leave. We weren't like a missions group that's just coming in and coming out. No disrespect to missions groups. That's but right. we were, we're, were going to be in this with them. And both my friend and I were like, we got to wash their feet. And in Nepal, in their culture, your head is sacred. So you don't ever touch somebody's head. Uh, and to show respect, you, you, know, you bow your head, mm-hmm. you do this. Mm-hmm. But your feet are profane. And as you move like down the body... head to
1: toe is a descent.
2: It is. It, it literally... that It is. That's their spiritual thought. And so your feet are profane. They're very dirty. Nepal, you know, there's cows everywhere. Your feet get filthy. And so you never touch your feet to somebody else, and you don't touch other people's feet, or you become polluted with what, you know, with their feet. So to wash somebody's feet in Nepal, uh, it has a different connotation than it would here. But I also imagine it probably... You know, back in the time of Jesus, he washed somebody's feet. That was also pretty significant because your feet were dirty, and uh, so Nepal. When we washed their feet, here we are. Th- we these older guys from another country, letting them know that that they're, they matter. They're valued. They they totally matter, and we're we're going to be in it with them. And that's that was one of the more significant turning points in my own heart, uh, and it was very meaningful for me and my spiritual development.
1: And actually, it seems to me, has hugely informed where you are today. In other words, your trajectory has been driven by those experiences. Uh, I just have to reflect on the power of being, by design, in the company of people who uh, otherwise we would never meet.
2: Yeah. And, and I, th- you know, like our executive director, David Beasley, he talks about the thing that drives him, the reason he's so passionate about this job. And he, he, he had never really thought of the World Food Program. He didn't th- think about the UN. And he tells the people who work at the UN, who aren't necessarily, in fact, very few of them are from the West and from a Christian background or Christian culture. He's like, look, I do this because every person is created in the image of God. And in the scriptures that we read, that he reads, we are to love our neighbor as our equal. And, and there isn't a caste system in, in the creation story. There isn't, there's no caste. Uh, and in, in Christendom, you know, we know that there, there, in Christ, there is no Jew or Greek. There's no male or female. There's no free or slave. We all matter. Everybody matters and has this incredible, they're all the image of God. That's the whole Matthew 25. When you did it to the least of these, you did it to me. And Mother Teresa, when she would talk about this, she would say, Jesus has put himself in the distressing disguise of the poor. And, and there is something to be uh, gleaned spiritually by getting into those dirty weeds, so to speak, and finding him there. Because when you love somebody, uh, your life changes. The world
1: changes your own perspective. I've had the privilege, uh, when Mother Teresa was still alive, I visited her place in Calcutta and went to her apartment, actually. And I'll never forget that it was a simple room, as we might imagine, whitewashed walls. But she, I don't know if she did it by her own hand or had someone else do it. The four walls of the room that she called home was uh, almost like wallpaper, of the words of Jesus in blue, I don't blue ink or paint or something, mm-hmm. but <laughs> every wall was covered with these words of Jesus. Mm-hmm. That's all it was. And I thought, what a world. I mean, uh, her world was tough and challenging, and uh, she, you know, we've read, she's had some of her own struggles as she's passed away, and some of her diaries and things have been uh, un- uncovered. She went through a lot of her own challenges, but to live in a room where the words of Jesus mm-hmm. is what you woke up with, and went to sleep with just inescapably informed just this where she she said so often uh, we've seen her quoted and I was there that, you know when I when I'm with these people who are the most desperate in need and often hungry she says i'm with jesus hmm. and we all we all we all many of us crave that that closer communion that more reality that more Tactile sense of Jesus, maybe we're looking in the wrong places.
2: Well, and I think there's, you know, I want, I want to also affirm this whole idea that it isn't just in the poor, but it isn't this idea of food. Food is in the scriptures, in, in every sacred text. You know, it, in Genesis, I just, it struck me the other day as for, for the first time I read it this particular way. When God set humanity in order, when He puts Adam into the garden, the very first thing He talks about is food. The first words to to the man are, you may surely eat. Wow. The first thing that God says to to the human that is recorded is, you may surely eat. What an intimate moment that God would speak to you the first thing, you may surely eat. And so that's where the story begins in in the book of Genesis, which is honored by the, the Jewish, Muslim, and Christian traditions. And then at the end of the the Christian scriptures, the end of those scriptures end with a banquet. And so food is this, and and within Christendom, you know, Jesus, the last supper, he makes food. He says, every time you eat bread and wine, remember me. So there is this moment every day when we eat, that is an affirmation of God's, God's intent for us it's to be close to him. Like, why did he design us to eat? You know? It didn't have to be that way. It didn't. Like, I, I don't <laughs> think the angels eat, right? But why did he make it so we have to eat? And could it possibly be that it would be a way for us to connect with him? You know, you look at the beginning, you may surely eat. You look at the life of Jesus, remember me when you eat. He fed people out of nothing. He's talking about food all the time. He's had many dinner parties and luncheons, right? He is he is. He's you know, his first miracle is around food and wine. And then at the end, when humanity is restored after the judgment, there's this banquet. So food is central to who we are. It's we all think about it all the time. so if we if we have the luxury of thinking about food all the time, what do I want to eat? I mean, my kids ask me this every day. You know what do I want for breakfast? Do I want cereal, pancakes? You know, sausage? Do I want eggs? Do I want a bagel? I mean, like we have so many choices that we those choices almost distract us from the intimacy of the experience, and 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 yet there's this. So just imagine if you didn't have the choice, if you didn't have the choice of eating, your whole thing would be how do I how do I get it? How can I have it again?
1: Before you came to the World Food Program at the UN, uh, you spent some time working with Mercy Corps. Uh, It's another great uh, instrument of relief and life uh, on many parts of the world. Uh, I know that you had experience in Asia with Mercy Corps, and that brings us back to North Korea, which you already referenced Uh, You're one of the few people I've ever met that actually has been to North Korea who could describe it as an eyewitness. Uh, It's often described as one of the most closed countries in the world, uh, isolated. Uh, There seems to be this kind of fence around it that uh, is impenetrable. Uh, Talk to us a little bit about your impression uh, about North Korea and what should we know? What should we remember when we think about it or hear about it in the news?
2: That's a good question. What should we think about or remember about North Korea? Well, one, uh, I would say a lot of the impressions people have about North Korea, many of them are right, but many of them are wrong. And so what's true, what's not? Um, It is the most organized and cleanest country I have ever been to. Um, Eat off the sidewalk. Oh, yeah, because everybody has a role. Everybody knows their role, and everything is organized, which is good and bad. You know, if it was done for per- so, that's what it is. There. Could be confining, could be reassuring,
1: depending on your point of view.
2: Well, yeah, and I would say, you know, in this case it's it's not by it's not by freedom's sake that everybody's it's organized, right, right. right? So it's difficult. It's a really hard place. Um, but I would also say, you know, people are people, and so most of the people that we would meet outside of the Capitol when we're in hospitals or clinics or children's homes. You know, the people that are working there, they're thinking about, how do I help this person? How do I help my community? How do we, how do, how can we flourish? That, you know, they don't, they don't, they're not, they're thinking about what we think about. You know, they're thinking about some sports on Saturday. They're thinking about maybe we, you know, have enough for dinner. They don't have enough food. It was We saw that repeatedly. In good times and bad times, food is a, it is not. It's it, a luxury of a kind. It's it, yeah. It's not a thriving country right now, uh, but the people are very hardworking. They are industrious. They have very very few resources, and so when you have few resources, industrious people, um, it's it's a hard hard place. You wrote an op-ed in USA Today
1: uh, a few years ago about it, a film produced by Sony Pictures uh, that was. Well, part snarky, part comedic, part satire, part...
2: Yeah, not my op-ed. <laughs> Their movie was was comedic
1: satire. Thank you for clarifying <laughs> that. You were reflecting on this film, which yeah. uh, Sony Pictures have produced called The Interview, um, and, and you were reflecting on why uh, that kind of media presence or, or that kind of
2: entertainment can actually impact the way in which the world unfolds. Yeah, and this is where it goes to your question, You know, what should we know? We should not underestimate North Korea. We should not marginalize them. We should take them seriously because that's part of just human dignity and respect. So that's a starting point. We should respect uh, who they are. Uh, they are an independent country, and we need to recognize that. However, they do have a lot of, they have, like I said, consequences and and, and difficulties. The reason I wrote the op-ed, what I said was that movie is wrong and threatening to peace. We are technically still at war with North Korea, and that movie was about jokingly killing their leader. Not just a made-up leader, but their actual leader, Kim Jong-un, by name, and they mocked him as a person. In the U.S., movies are made all the time about killing the U.S. president, but they don't make a movie about actually killing Barack Obama or about killing Donald Trump. If Sony made a movie, a satire about assassinating Donald Trump while he was in the White House, people would be outraged. It would be so vilified. Sony would be just pilloried by all kinds of press and media. Well, that's what we did to the North at a time when we know they have a— what we consider a reckless ambition with nuclear weapons. And and why would we antagonize uh, a nuclear state by threatening to kill them? And then we also learned during the course of that all of this news cycle around um, Sony's picture that the State Department consulted on it, which provided, in a sense, to the North Korean perspective, that the US government sanctioned that message. And so it looked like propaganda, like this was going to be okay, and to the North Koreans it appeared a threat. And so, to, you know, I, I, am, I, I would love to see a peaceful outcome and resolution because the people there suffer tremendously. I, I by no way condone or, or would ever um, justify the position of their government. Okay? I'm, not, I'm not supporting their government at all in, in their, their policies or politics. Okay, we know there's tons of human. I mean, I'm not even. I don't even have to do that. I um, but we have to recognize if we would like to see a peaceful outcome, we should not antagonize or support um, uh, the kind of um, dismissive, not just dismissive, but like it was really antagonistic to okay. them at a time of dangerous. It was an assault. Politics. Yeah, it was. And we should write. We shouldn't. And and by just saying, "Oh, it's no big deal. It's just a Seth Rogen movie. We'll we'll laugh it off," you have to understand what that impact would have on them. So, if a kid does a Facebook post uh, talking about murdering their teacher, and we're going to kill our teacher, and our teacher sucks, our teacher's bad, our teacher's this, and then jokes all about it, that kid will get kicked out of school. Right. You know, and and so I think we have to remember that everybody. It do, do, doesn't matter who they are. We have to start with an element of respect, especially if, if there's a huge conflict. Hard to persuade someone
1: uh, after championing a film like that. I heard that.
2: Yeah, because I, I would love to see peace for those people. They suffer unbelievably. Uh, you talk about you know, the least of these. Just imagine if you're, if you're an orphan in North Korea, you have absolutely no political voice or no hope right? Who's, who's going to advocate for you when you're hungry, which is all the time, or if you're sick? There's, there's nobody coming in to see those kids. And so once those people are real to you, it's really hard to watch somebody else mock them. You yes. do, and that's, that's really painful for them because then, they, then you've taken away their hope. And I think that's a, that's a dangerous thing.
1: As you're talking, it just strikes me that food is a way of respect, isn't it? When we share our table. I mean, there's one thing to drop food out the back of a plane because that's the only way you can help uh, in South Sudan. But in ordinary life, when we share our table, when we share food, Mm -hmm. there's a certain level of respect and engagement there that doesn't come otherwise. Yeah,
2: that's right. We can honor people by the way we invite them to the table, which, you know, some of your other guests have even talked about, just being invited to the table is a big deal.
1: Well, and that speaks to the whole concept of Christian hospitality, for instance. Uh, why that's so powerful. Mm-hmm. You've you've had such a fascinating journey. And David, you're still such a young guy. I mean, here you've got half a lifetime left. I well, help, hope I have half a lifetime left. Uh, if, I'm, I'm looking at I'd you. I'd really be excited I, if I'm I have that father. much. <laughs> I'm your father. I'm saying you've got a half a lifetime left. Uh, you, you've intersected with so many different... Uh, threads and personalities and characters. You've seen so much. Uh, and that's been true in the political sphere as well as the uh, charitable relief sphere and, and the business world. I mean, you, you had some business interests too back home in Oregon. Uh, as you look at all of those threads, what, what do you see in the future? What What is giving you optimism? And by the same token, what might be making you pessimistic about our trajectory as a people?
2: Yeah, so I... My optimism comes. Well, I, I have hope that I I, I see that when pe- when a few people agree to a f- to something, then that can that really can be life altering and it can be community changing, which can be nationally changing. So I, I do think there are some good people doing good work in the world, and those people give me a lot of hope. Um, I love what your podcast is doing. It's encouraging people, but. On the, on the political or on the business, there's a lot of opportunity. What concerns me, what's, what, uh, what threatens, well, the other thing that gives me a lot of hope is how far we've come. You know, you look at where the Dutch were at the end of World War II when they had been starving and where they are today and how generous the Dutch people are uh, and also how tall they are. They're now the <laughs> tallest people in the world. Really? Yeah, they are. They're right back to that farm. You it, know, it's incredible that the Dutch are, they're tall. They're they're multilingual and you know they're very generous people uh, because they made some early on decisions mm-hmm. about food security and so I'm encouraged by what can be done that we are only at ten percent of the world's population who's in, who's really in need that's way better than ninety percent yes and so the thing that really concerns me is this factionalism and divisions and and division that is happening and with all of this um, kind of awakening to, to self or to my community versus that community, we are starting to attack those institutions that have created so much of the freedoms and growth around us. So if we decide to start attacking the, each other and those institutions, we could very quickly start falling into a, a really bad pattern that's destructive instead of constructive. So some of the conversations are intended to be constructive, but when they become self-focused, they become destructive towards the other. And we think it's my way or it's your way, and I'm going to make sure it's my way. Mm-hmm. And and you see that uh, in political parties, you see it in different minority groups who are kind of attacking different other groups. So I, I'm real. I am very concerned about this either-or mentality and 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 the fight to justify just one side.
1: Yeah, it seems to me that uh, American civilization, American democracy as I've known it, at least in my lifetime, can only flourish as a certain level of civility, a certain level of engagement that Mm -hmm. does respectfully acknowledge uh, diversity of view and tries to move, move in the conversation to places of agreement and how can we together problem solve instead of the kind of labeling and stuff that we see. Uh, uh, We had a podcast guest uh, some time ago, a gospel singer named Sandy Patty, who said the dignity of disagreement is somehow being lost. It is. Uh, And uh, she said that right here at this table, and I'm with you on that. That seems like a threat. In fact, I would say it may be the greatest threat to the American way of life that has ever been known, apart from all the other challenges we've faced in our history. When we are not able to actually converse— to debate, to problem solve together—it's uh, a pretty dark future. I yeah,
2: say. and I, I love that idea—the the dignity of disagreement. Because the if we don't apply dignity to disagreement, then you're going to get into this danger of division. And um, I just coined that right there. This that double D. You know, no wonder sort of, you're at the top and, of the, the peck. And you know, going back to Tony Hall, one of the things that's so. Uh, Encouraged me early on was he met and he still meets every week with a couple of Republican members of Congress and even though they're all out of session now, I mean they're all out of office. Mm -hmm. He still meets and prays with uh, a Republican congressman named Frank Wolf and another Republican congressman from Pennsylvania named Joe Pitts, and they they meet together physically to read the scriptures, to pray for one another, to pray for our country, and they disagree on so many political things. But uh, they are united in their love for God, for each other, for the country, uh, for the rule of law, for the institutions around the country that mm-hmm. have protected mm-hmm. and, and our freedoms and protected opportunity for us to grow. So it, and you know, he, he invited us I was I'm from that conservative fundamentalist background, and he invited me in a liberal uh, New Yorker. Uh, to be part of his community, part of his family, and to find something that you shared with Jesus—I mean, that's the outcome. Yeah,
1: that led you uh, to Nepal and all and the, the, rest, and the, the rest program. of this world. And yeah, the yeah rest, Mercy yeah. Corps. I just the have first, to say,
2: first time I went to North Korea was actually with Tony Hall.
1: There you go. Yeah, I have to say, Joe Pitts. I know that guy.
2: Oh, do you know yeah, Joe? Yes, Mr. Mr. Pitts is, is a great guy. guy.
1: He's got a Church of God uh, root, and I pastored his uh, family. Uh, here for many years. So. Oh, you did very uh, good. He used to come and visit and listen to me preach and didn't run away. He was
2: very gracious, so he learned how to get along. So yeah, and uh, and you know I have to say it's 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 very reciprocal. This dignity of disagreement, and and when when we don't agree to that, uh, then there is turmoil. Absolutely. I should, I should say,
1: Joe Pitts and I didn't disagree about anything. He just was so kind and gracious whenever he sat through my long sermon that never came to a close.
2: Well, you don't—you just don't think that he disagreed with you. He... <laughs> That's it, because he's so smooth. Well,
1: I, I have to ask one more little department of your life, David, and uh, see what you say. Because you, you spent time in D.C., mm-hmm. and uh, as you were there, you were engaged with a— uh, a group, an organization called the International Fellowship, which has uh, had a lot of impacts and it invests in people and uh, I know that uh, you kind of became engaged with Tony Hall through that connection mm-hmm. and and the investment in a new generation and you're one of those perhaps that uh, came into that that stream. Is there anything you could tell us about that concept of influence?
2: Well, I think just what I was describing with Tony. And the kid and the guys in Nepal, like that's the influence we want to have. We want to have an influence for good because we love God. And uh, you know, Tony can meet with congressmen, but he also like he he goes to Nepal and just hangs out with those kids for two or three weeks, yeah. And 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 cleans instead of going there to talk. One time he said, "I'm so sick of hearing myself talk. I think I'm just going to go to Nepal and work in the house." Yeah. You know. So I think the influence. Um, can be a, a word with a lot of misperception. We think of influence as how do I influence policy to get what I want, as opposed to influence that's going to change the way I think and influence to change the way I serve. I think you know, this last point you're asking about, especially because the International Foundation and the National Prayer Breakfast gets kind of put on- Which are parts of the fellowship's yeah, uh, totally. trajectory. Yeah, totally. You know, one of the things that I've learned is that the purpose of power, is to increase your ability to serve. It's not to increase your ability to get more. It's to increase your ability to serve. And the people who have influenced me are those that do that. And I have seen people at the prayer breakfast or back in Washington, not even related to the prayer breakfast, who use their power to serve Mm themselves. And that's an abuse of power. We all recognize abuse of power. And it's when you use your position or your influence for your own personal enrichment, the purpose of power is to serve. And a guy like Tony Hall and his wife, Janet, and some of these other friends around, the two of them, uh, have really st- struck me that they, because they love Jesus, they want to serve, and they want to lift up those who are hurting, and they want to bring people who are outside in, and they want to make sure people are fed and clothed, and they're
1: not alone, And that gives us optimism because there are people like that all around us. Yeah, it's the whole story of redemption. Back to the World Food Program. How can I help? What could could somebody, listening to this today, thinking as I drive by McDonald's and Wendy's and think about what I'm going to have for dinner tonight and get up tomorrow and shall I have this cereal or those eggs souffle? I mean, how do I respond Given the reality that you know
2: so well, well, so I, I think it's actually really easy to feed people. I mean, it is. It's like fifty cents a day will feed will feed a kid, or if, sometimes it's like seventy five cents we will feed a family. So there's the World Food Program is one of many agencies. Our mission is to help end hunger. We would welcome contributions to WFP. We we have a, just type WFP into your browser, and you'll find a way to donate. You can also give to other organizations that are working on hunger. I think the big thing is how how do you help? Um, so because when you help you're changed and you connect at a deeper level and you can you can grow. I think a lot of people after this pandemic especially when we've been isolated for so long and we've seen depression go up, we've seen we've seen medications just skyrocket, but we've also seen other needs around us. I, I'm really encouraged by some of the opportunities that are coming out of this with, with all these kids like my own who haven't been in school, they're behind. We know there's going to be a huge learning loss. And I was talking to a friend the other day and they bring, and this is totally off topic, but it's the same spirit, okay? Yes. It's not mm-hmm. food. Yes. So you, you can give money, you can you know, go to the food bank or you can go to WFP, you know, but there's ways for you to connect. And so like with kids who, we have, we have tens of millions of kids who haven't been in school we have tens of millions of people who's, who go to church. And if they would just read a book to a kid every week, volunteer at your local school. If churches would start adopting their local elementary school and just send people to, into the classrooms to read or invite the kids to a, a, a neutral place where they could read to those kids, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. they're going to learn those kids' stories. You read a book to a kid after three or four months, you know what their family life is like. You know what their 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 food you know, if they have enough food, right. are they hungry, or whatever? And you'll start to build a relationship with somebody similar to what happened to me in Nepal and also what's happening to me in Portland with kids around us. So I just think there there are so many opportunities everywhere. And it takes a little bit of time and it also takes, a, it can take a little bit of money and you can change somebody's life. And you can have a huge impact in the world just by doing, uh, just by giving a little. And I, it's what, uh, It's what uh, de Tocqueville talked about when he did Democracy in America. America is going to be great and is great because there are so many people in these churches who are teaching each other how to be good. And we should be doing good in the world. And it's easy for us to do. So I just, I think for our country, what gives me hope is we have people who can do good and like to do good and want to do good. It's what I love about Americans. They really think they can do it. But this pandemic has put a lot of people into a little bit of a state of, I'm not sure, you know, I'm scared, I'm depressed, but you can do it. It's not hard. We can get out there and do it. I have to ask because you
1: just referenced, adopt a school, read a child a book. You're going to learn about their situation. You'll even learn about whether they have enough food. What would you say about food insecurity in the United States?
2: It's real. Uh, It's more real than people uh, might be aware uh, I'm going to just guess that most of your listeners are pretty educated people. They know how to find the podcast and listen to it. Um, but food insecurity in the U.S. is 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 very real. It's not what WFP focuses on because we don't work in the United States, but it's something I'm highly attuned to. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's in every single community. College campuses suffer from food insecurity on a regular basis. So well, that's maybe another topic, but... Yeah, yeah.
1: You, you're saying from your vantage point, that's a thing here, too, yeah. at home. Yeah. All right, one last thing. We've uh, talked about your journey, your vocational calling, about the realities of our world. Uh, we've talked about uh, your, your passion. We've talked about Jesus some. If there was, if there was something you could say to a, a, a listener today who um, doesn't get the whole Jesus thing, you know just like okay i uh, i get that that works for you what would you say to them about that uh, i would
2: say what would i say to them about hunger or what would
1: i say about no, about him? jesus i mean if they're saying that i get the jesus thing has brought you into all that and stuff oh, yeah. so so what how about how about that what
2: what what difference does that really make well for me it's made a huge difference but i th- what i could what you just pointed out and i i think um Because everybody experiences hunger, we all know what hunger means. We also understand the need for a relationship. And there is, whether or not you believe in Jesus or whether or not you believe in God, you have benefited from somebody who's loved you. You've known what it's like to be loved. At some point, whether you were a kid from a teacher or a a neighbor or a parent or an aunt or a cousin or a brother, we all know what it means to be loved, and It's something we all desperately crave, and we want to also love in return. Uh, That's the theme of all the great movies, is to Mm -hmm. be loved and to love in return. And the most tangible, easiest way to start that is by giving someone something to eat. Mm. Food. Yeah.
1: The stew in remembrance of me.
2: Mm-hmm. Or in college, it's come to this meeting because you get what free pizza, <laughs> That's free, free pizza, right? Well, okay, let's just—if
1: you give me ice cream, I am, I'm yeah. all in. I mean, there food,
2: <laughs> food is such an easy way to honor somebody. Yes. You know, this idea, right. to do for others what you would have them do for you. I'd, I'd really love an ice cream cone, so I'm gonna buy Jim one. Uh, I mean, okay, podcast over. We're on our way. <laughs> <laughs> David Austin, thank you so much for being with us, Jim Lyon. Thank you for talking about food, for talking about uh, the World Food Program.
1: It's such a great work, and thank you for giving yourself to it and all those who are on your team. And uh, we want to encourage everyone to think about uh, WFP, the World Food Program. Just type that into your browser, and you'll yeah. find a website that can really open your eyes and uh, help steer you.
2: Yeah, wfp.org will take you right to where
1: you can donate. And we just want to encourage you subscribe to our own All That to Say dot uh, org. Our Podcast. We're so glad to have you alongside. David, God bless. Thank you, Jim.
0: For more information, visit allthattoSay.org. Thank you for joining the conversation. Don't forget to like and subscribe.